says, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your father's house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you worshipped here in the 90s or the early 2000s, that's a familiar phrase at the beginning of a sermon. Dear Pastor Troy Mooneyham, who was the senior pastor when I was a youth worker here, fresh out of college, that he opened every sermon with that meditation, and I love it, and it's in the end of our psalm for today, Psalm 19. One, I thought I'd bring it back just in tribute to my friend Troy. But I also think about what it's saying that the Word of God would find a meditative space within our hearts. That the Word spoken by God through His speakers, through His Bible read and through His pastors teaching, that it would find a space in our hearts to meditate upon so that God would be our rock and our redemption would belong to us. But now I think about what's going on in this temple in Jesus' day in the gospel reading. I think about what's going on in the church, in our country, in our present age. I think about just life in general in our digital age and how hard it is to create a meditative space anywhere. And even if we were given a meditative space, like an hour without kids or chores, or you wake up early by accident and you have the darkness and quiet of night, even then, we're not wired any longer to have meditative space. Now, some of you are. Some of you have proven more resistant to the digital age than most of us. But our brains have been shallowed out. We, we like constant clicks and changes. You can watch the opening credits to Sesame Street in 1970 or whatever when they started, and you'll watch the same video clip for like 10 or 12 seconds before it changes to the next clip. And today, the average clip is like one to two seconds, and it's a new graphic clip animation for a very quick Sesame Street theme. We're speeding up. There's a lot of words, too. There's nothing like the internet to produce far too many words. There's a guy who lived in the 1800s, and it was said of him that he was the last person in the world who knew everything there was to know in the world. John Stuart Mill was said to be the last you know, polymath who absolutely knew the extent of human knowledge to that point. But now there's just so much words being produced constantly. So when you hear me or the psalmist say, may the words 
of my mouth and of God's word and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in my sight, O Lord. We're working against the wind here. Words are like wind and our hearts are like restlessness. Today's gospel is hard. It begs a lot of questions about what's going on, where exactly in the temple is this happening, why is Jesus doing this, is he giving us an example, because we tell our kids, or we've been told, be like Jesus, imitate Christ, be more Jesus-like in your life, what would Jesus do, it used to be a bracelet back in the 90s, Pastor Troy probably had a WWJD bracelet at one time, so are we supposed to do what Jesus did here? Are we supposed to engage in a mostly peaceful protest in the temple courtyard and turn over tables and free animals and drive them out and dump over the money tables and drive out the money changers and with violent words speak against the actions of people who, oh, we're just trying to help people come into town get something to give at the temple sacrifice. He knows what they're doing. They're making a margin. They're making a profit on the people who have come to worship. Jesus is protesting. Should we be like Jesus? What does that mean today? Because everybody, it doesn't matter how you vote, you all have something that you think is worth protesting. How do we draw appropriate parallels from then to now? What's being exchanged today? I wonder if we're trading temples for tribes. Instead of a temple or a a place of worship where you come to be part of a worldwide family, as we say, I believe in one holy Catholic church. Doesn't mean we have a pope. Just means we believe in one universal church. The divisions are human. The divisions aren't gods. Even so, more and more, not just in the United States, but more and more, our temples or our churches have become tribes and far more distinctive politically, left or right, than ever before. And other kinds of tribes. I mean, Lutherans are a tribe, let's face it. Some of you didn't grow up Lutheran, and you're like, I'm like here, but I'm like, I don't know, there's some things that just kind of go like this to me, or why is this or that really important here? And that's helpful for Lutherans like me to to hear. You know, a lot of times, and the fact that in the, in the United States, at least, you can go to any kind of church you want. I mean, you pick your flavor. You can pick your music, the pastor's style, the length of the sermon. You can pick a religious tradition, theology. You can pick how political it gets in its topics or not. You can have your checklist. You might have to drive far to get to that perfect church, and you might find after a few months there that it doesn't exist. But it feels like a religious culture in which Jesus wouldn't be able to storm into one temple and say something about the whole church. He'd have to storm into all these different kinds of temples and he'd have a different message for different temples because we've become tribalized. Or perhaps, like I alluded to with the kids' sermon, it's free to be here. I mean, we don't charge admission. Heaven forbid if you ever feel like you're obligated to pay your way to pray here but we swap the purchasing of sheep to give as sacrifices. We swap that for other kinds of things. I'm not saying this is true of you in particular, but I'm saying for me, there's a certain amount of saying, I know I don't have to give anything to God 
But I do feel like I should at least receive some self-fulfillment while I'm here. Uh, I'm willing to give my time or my hours or my money, but there's, it needs to be kind of, it needs to fulfill me in some way too. It can't just be disconnected from what I need. That's natural. Or what's happening more and more, especially, and I'll get into this a little bit upstairs after the service, when we see just the state of the church in the country, statistics of church affiliation, participation, attendance, all those kinds of things, and not just in churches, but in other kinds of institutions, fraternal organizations and other clubs, is that what can end up happening is not an exchange of money for sheep, but an exchange of mission for maintenance. That when under duress or distress, an institution shores up itself, and if it has a little bit left over, then it can have a mission for other people. And again, I'm not saying that's true for you or for us. I'm just saying I'm asking, how do we draw a parallel from Jesus storming in to the temple or Jesus storming in to Bethesda? There's a tendency under, anxiety, under anxious times to batten down the hatches, to circle the wagons, to become insular. And it is an anxious time in our country's history. Let me give you a snapshot, and maybe it'll convince you to have your second cup of coffee upstairs in the adult forum class. We're going to spend three weeks on The Great Dechurching. It's a book that came out last fall. You may have seen the authors on CNN or wherever. And one author is a pastor in Florida, and the other author is a sociologist and uh, and a professor in a college. They're both people of faith. Um, and they've written this book that basically is trying to get a sense of the biggest shift in American religious history. There's been three big shifts in the past. Three major shifts. Pre-colonial through the revolutionary period was a major great awakening, is what they call it. A, a major influx of church participation in the colonies. The Second Great Awakening was basically 1890-ish all the way to the uh, onset of the Civil War. It's called the Second Great Awakening. And then the greatest shift in religious history in our, in our past was in the 25 years after the Civil War. Church participation doubled in those 25 years. But there's a fourth shift taking place, and it's in the opposite direction. And in the last 20 to 25 years, about 40 million American adults used to go to church and no longer do. And they account it in this way. Someone who used to go to church at least once a month is now going less than once a year. So this isn't like people are just coming on Easter and Christmas. This is from once a month to less than once a year. Maybe every other Easter is with grandma or something. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who came to church and came to faith during the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. In some ways, I'm telling you something you maybe didn't know, already knew, but maybe didn't know how dramatic it was. The class for today and the next few weeks is intended to produce a sense of we can do something here. There's a great hopefulness about the opportunity, but we have to be real about what's going on. And let me just give you a quick Lutheran tag on that. 
uh, since we have a tribe our, ourselves. Lutherans have three eras of church life in America. Immigration, procreation, and decline. Through at least the 1920s, millions of Scandinavian and German Lutherans came to our shores here. And they established ethnic conclaves. Maybe they worshipped in Danish from 1900 to 1940-something in this place. They established a, a hub for the social life of the Danes or the Norwegians or the Germans in that particular community. And then, established in America with new opportunities, they had babies. And in the second phase, the average Lutheran woman had four to five kids. All you had to do was retain half of the kids and the church would grow. And then in the more recent era, literally the statistics changed the, the year after birth control, which I'm not here to talk about birth control, but the year after birth control um, became uh, like available, um, the trend began of decline and Lutheran women, on average, produce now 1.7 kids. If you retain half of your kids, you're declining. And we're not retaining half of our kids. So this is a whole thing, isn't it? So if you want to talk about that, get a cup of coffee and come upstairs today. What I want to finish with this today is back to our gospel. Because I just probably gave you a feeling, or you know, if you, if you work for a church, or if you serve on a church council, or... If, if you love this church, I probably gave you a little feeling um, sharing some of those trends. But there's more than a feeling going on in our gospel story today. Now Jesus storms in and he looks like he's full of emotion. And he really is. Jesus was not a stoic. He's, he storms in. He's turning tables. He's shouting loud enough to be heard. And he says, quoting Psalm 69... Zeal for my father's house has consumed me. So Jesus has great passion going on. He's got zeal. He isn't just going to take the church's problems standing up, or sitting down, I mean. Jesus has more than a feeling. But I want to read around what he quoted from Psalm 69, because he's referring to a lot more than a feeling here. From Psalm 69. It is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my kindred, an alien to my mother's children. It is zeal for your house that has consumed me. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. This psalm, like every other psalm, belongs to Jesus. Jesus puts this psalm on his lips. The zeal for the house that will consume him is not his feeling or passion about a temple gone wrong. The zeal that will consume him is the zeal of the priests and the scribes and the Romans who for zeal for their power and position and authority and monopoly, their zeal for keeping these things as they are would lead them to consume Jesus. That Jesus would have falling on him the insults of those who reproach him. 
that he would be shamed, that he, ultimately on the cross, would bear the shame and the insults, that zeal for the Father's house would lead others to consume him for your sake, for my sake. Psalm 69 continues with a prayer. As for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me. Will your faithful help rescue me from sinking in the mire? Let me be delivered from my enemies in the deep waters. Do not let the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. As we during Lent are thinking about salvation in the storm, as we chart a new course as a congregation, we see here Jesus himself taking upon his own life the words of this psalmist, let not these floods cover me. Let not the deep of the sea swallow me up. Let not the pit of the grave close its mouth over me. And it's with psalms like this one in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalms like these that Jesus prays on our behalf as he hangs from a cross with the face of God turned aside from him. But his prayer was answered on the third day. In the resurrection of Jesus, the pit opened its mouth and Jesus sprang forth into new life. And I have good news for the church. Jesus is the church. And he's doing just fine. In fact, the church can't even decline because Jesus is alive and well. The church, it's impossible to decline. Long live the church. The church is Jesus. And Jesus makes us his own body. And like Paul knew with the Corinthians, it's foolishness to the Greeks. Why would you want a resurrected body? Far better to become like an an angel and a non-physical divine being or something after death. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Why in the world would we want a Messiah who was crucified naked on a cross? So whether it's a stumbling block or a foolishness, Paul knows to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Even God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, he says. And even today in 2024, people can look at the church, either this one or the big church, and they can say, this is an unimpressive institution. It's a stumbling block to the kind of life I want to live. Or they can look at the message of a, of a Savior who dies for our sins and say, this unmerited mercy is not for me. I don't need a handout. I don't need mercy. But if our institution seems un- unimpressive and if our mercy seems unmerited and unwelcome, long live the church. Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen and alleluia. He's risen indeed. And he is doing just fine. And he will call his sheep by name. And he will bring us to his gifts. He will give us his mercy and grace. He will give us his word. And he, through his Holy Spirit, will find a way for it to have a meditation in our hearts that's acceptable in God's sight. Amen.